The primary purpose of the matter over mind experience is to educate. It doesn't constitute advice or services. Before making any changes, please consult a medical or dietary professional. Nutrition, gut health, mental health, hormones, and so much more. These all play roles in sustainable weight management. So, I scour the globe for top experts in fitness, health, and weight loss to bring to you this podcast. So, take a seat and enjoy the ride. Welcome to another episode of the Matt Overmind Experience. I'm your host, Master Trainer and weight management expert, Narado Zico Powell. And I have another two-time guest on the show. Well, the first time she was on the show was before I was on YouTube, right? But I have Dr. Shana Keller, my dear friend, and one of the best naturopathic doctors I know. And I know a lot of oh, naturopathic doctors. You. She really knows her stuff. In fact, before the interview, we were geeking out for like 20 minutes on different health different health items. I mean, she has so much knowledge that I love to soak up from her. But see, Dr. Keller teaches the reflux method, eat without fear and forever diets. And I'm happy to explain that to you in our intro because I really love that title. And stuff we're going to talk about is mostly acid reflux. So she's going to talk about how she overcame acid reflux, some of the causes of acid reflux, also some of her top tips to relieve reflux and a whole lot more. So if you study with, I'm going to study, struggle with acid reflux and heartburn, you may not want to just pop tums all the time because Dr. Keller is going to give you some banging information. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, Shana, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Zico. Really appreciate it. Glad to be back for a second time and feel a lot more confident in the interview process. So that's always nice. That's Uh, right. You know, I'm going to drill you and I'm going to drill you. So get ready for it. It's good. It's good. So the reflux relief method I created based on my um, decade plus of experience, including going to medical school, because I couldn't find a doctor that actually helped me get better. And I knew when my regular GP told me, oh, better just do exploratory surgery. I'm 20 years old and I'm so grateful for that moment in my 20 year old naive mind that was like, I'm going to be out for a whole ski season. Um, No, there has to be a better answer, right? Like there, like the pills weren't working. I had all the imaging done. I had a barium swallow a couple of times. I had endoscopies multiple times. Oh, you know, just a little bit of this. And no one ever told me I had a hiatal hernia. Um, and a hiatal hernia is a, one of the causes of gastro, uh, excuse me, gastro inter, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disorder, GERD, or chronic reflux in general. And I don't care if it's one centimeter big. Every person's body is going to react and respond to things a little bit differently. And, you know, the regular gastroenterologist oftentimes, not always, but in my experience, they tend to just like, it's small. Who cares? Maybe you'll get a Nissan phone duplication later in life or whatever it is. And I, I knew that there had to be a better way. And turns out there is. And it's really nice to be here today, not eating a super restrictive diet and not having reflux every single day like I was. So if I can do it, I know that I can help other people do it as well. And I've had a few clients go through my program at this point, and they've had pretty good success. One lady, she said, I would have paid anything to feel this good six months ago. 
And she just did my online modules. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And I remember the first time I interviewed you, I mean, I learned some stuff. I mean, I was sitting out here and my mind was just completely blown. So let's, let's, let's dive deep into this. Let's first talk about acid reflux and GERD, right? So explain to my audience, what is acid reflux and what exactly is GERD? How are they related? They are very similar. And really the, the difference is, is an ICD-10 code. ICD-10, ICD-11 are the codes that we need to use in the medical profession for insurance to get covered. I don't take insurance, but I still know those codes because it was part of my medical training. Um, really what it comes down to is duration. Gastroesophageal reflux disorder is you know, you've had, you've had reflux for more than three months. It becomes a chronic condition. Whereas, you know, your dad's watching football and he's drank too much beers and had a couple too many pieces of pizza. And he feels a little bit of acid reflux or regurgitation. That's not unusual. And I see that quite frequently. There's a few different types of humans that I see for reflux. Some of them tend to be a little more thin framed like myself, a little more type A, a little more high strung. Um, then we get like the menopausal, perimenopausal women uh, that come to see me and they are struggling with it as well. And their hormones are kind of doing some weird things. Hormones do have protective and negative effects on our um, digestive system. Everything's a given a take. And then that kind of like middle-aged man that's having a midlife crisis and reflux all of a sudden started. I doubt it was all of a sudden, but it's like all of a sudden they're noticing these symptoms, right? And then one more group of people, silent reflux is way, way more common from a clinical perspective. And it's something I didn't even learn about in school. Just me being involved in like the different Facebook groups and listening to people's stories and they've got no symptoms. Then all of a sudden they have Baird's esophagus or they've got stage three adenocarcinoma in their throat. And it's like, wait a minute, what, how did you go from having no reflux symptoms to having cancer that's caused from acid reflux? That's crazy. So th- this, I'm, I'm a little curious now because we said we're talking about silent reflux. So mm-hmm. you have no symptoms. So is there a way to, to really detect it? Or you just, you just wait until, Hey, one day I have cancer. So what's really crazy is I learned about a diagnosis when I was in school called um, cough variant asthma. So it's a type of asthma where you don't have like breathing issues when you're exercising or when you get stressed out. It's like you just have this like annoying cough. So then what does the good doctor give you? They give you an abuterol inhaler and a couple other asthma medications, which trigger reflux. I am of the opinion that cough variant asthma until proven otherwise is silent reflux. So think about it from a physiological perspective. We've got the stomach that sits right here, right under the rib cage. And then we've got the throat that comes up and then obviously the back of the mouth, right? And you're dealing with like a <clears throat> little throat clearing or that infamous, I have post-nasal drip because of allergies, or I've got a little annoying cough, cough variant asthma, or is it silent reflux? And then all of a sudden you start having like weird changes to your voice. But again, you chalk it up to allergies. So many times I hear I have post-nasal drip because of allergies. And then I'm sitting there in a patient visit with someone that's like, every like three seconds. And I'm like, what's going on for you right now? Oh, I'm just clearing my throat. I'm having post-nasal drip. Great. I look in the back of their throat. It looks irritated. They have bad breath. My first response after doing this for the last three years, you have silent reflux. And there is a system that we can use. Um, let's see. It's called the reflux symptom index, the RSI. It's a little questionnaire that's been clinically tested. Um, and I use that with all of my reflux patients to monitor their progress. 
I think it's really a valuable tool because it's easy to forget how crappy you felt and then where you can go from. And it's like really a visual that people can use to see. So there are signs of it, but it's not your traditional, I have burning in my throat and I'm having like throw up in my mouth and my mouth tastes kind of bad. Those are less common than silent reflux symptoms of like the throat clearing and the like phlegm in the throat, if you will. So let's talk about lifestyle stuff then, because again, silent reflux just sounds scary, right? Yeah. Yeah. So are there some, maybe some lifestyle, some things that we're doing in our day-to-day that may be causing or leading towards silent reflux? Yeah. So a lot of people, and this was part of my story as well. When we eat, we eat so dang fast. Like we inhale our food. We don't chew our food. And I like to say our stomach does not have teeth. So if you're not starting with digestion, which actually begins in the brain by you cooking food. So right there, you just pop that meal into the microwave. You're not actually engaging with your food for whatever reason. You're too busy. You don't have time. Like it costs too much money. You know, you live alone, whatever the reason we've all got these lots of reasons, but the reality is we're human beings. We're not microwavable humans. Right. And so we are fast pacing our food. We're eating our food, sitting in front of the TV. And I do it too. I'm not saying I don't do it, but we've got to create a level of mindfulness. So we're engaging with our food again, because it's nourishing us. It's not just simply so we can like eat this thing and get it off the checklist. Like we really need to engage. That's how we nourish our bodies. Um, What other lifestyle things eating and then laying down going to sleep right afterwards. So um, when I've worked previous jobs or when I was a student, I wouldn't get home till 10 PM. And sometimes I would eat while I was driving home in on my hour commute. And then I would be so exhausted from the day. It was like 16 hour day. I would go to bed and I did start to have a resurgence of some of my symptoms when I was in school because I was so stressed out. So stress is another big factor. If you don't have a way of managing your stress and the reality is we live in a crazy stressful world. It is much more stressful than it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago. You know, we got the ding dings constantly with our phone and our email and this, that, and the other thing. And it makes it hard on our nervous system, whether we have neurodivergence or not, we are human beings. We are meant to be outside and like slow, build our shelter. Where's our food? Are our, is our family safe? Like these are simple things that we are not engaging in on a day-to-day basis, on a week to week, month to month. Like I even had a patient who told me he didn't remember the last time he even drank water. I was like, what? What do you mean you don't drink water? He only drinks Mountain Dew. I was like, oh. Okay, interesting. We've we've got some work to do. So talk about drinking. I'm interested in something else because I mm-hmm. talked to uh, Riley. I know you know Riley Romasco. Yeah. And I think she introduced us actually. She did. And she mentioned something about drinking, right? So let's say even if you do drink water, which we should, but there is a there's a time frame as far as should we drink with our meals, when should we drink before our meals or after our meals? Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So when I was a kid, I want to tell a story. When I was a little girl, um, we had a Mexican babysitter. We grew up, my, my brother and I, we grew up in New Mexico and she watched us a lot. My mom had the graveyard shift at work. She was a single parent. And I used to be so upset with her that she would not let us drink water or have milk or whatever it was, chocolate milk with our meals. And I never understood. And she, and today, you know, 20 years, 20 years later, I'm like, oh, my little 
my little babysitter totally understood this concept. And it's really common in not American culture to not drink water with food, with our meals. Um, And actually, if you need to drink liquids with your meals because food gets stuck in your mouth, you likely have a tongue tie that has been undiagnosed. And that's another thing that could be underlining a person's acid reflux issues and sleep apnea issues is our tongue is a very strong muscle. And it's supposed to move around. You're supposed to be able to stick your tongue over here when you got some something stuck back there. But if you can't do that, it makes it hard and you feel like you have to wash things down with water. You know, and another thing I would venture to guess is maybe those people that have a hard time eating without liquids are not producing proper saliva, likely because the American diet is practically devoid of bitter foods. Like the most common bitter thing people eat is coffee. And coffee has its own repercussions for people dealing with chronic reflux, but you can drink coffee and not have reflux. I promise you. Um, but I, I don't, I don't encourage people to drink water with meals. Um, I think waiting a little bit afterwards makes sense, but again, you're not chugging like 16 ounces of water, like a little bit of water to kind of encourage that, like a digestive process is one thing compared to drinking like multiple cups of water, or in some of my family members case, uh, multiple cups of soda with their breath, with their meals. Again, devoid of bitter. We need bitter foods again. Riley's uh, general recommendation is just like 10 to 15 minutes before your meal and mm-hmm. usually an hour after. And she kind of says 10 to 15 because your stomach is empty. Yeah. So that can prepare your body for digestion. But once you've eaten, you know, you want your digestion, you want your digestion to begin and then wait a little time, somewhere around an hour. Something else that I've also, that's really helped me is a five to 10 minute walk, like after my 100%. meals, because that increases, that increases digestion or improves digestion. And then like yeah. say an hour after my, my meals, when I usually would drink some water and that's helped me a lot yeah. because I don't eat and lay down. I don't I also don't eat and go straight to the gym or eat and do something ex, um, excitable. I, I go for like a nice 10 minute walk Gentle. as much as I possibly can. I'll do it every single time. But even even if it's around the apartment for a little bit, mm-hmm. just so I can get my digestions um, started. That's helped me a lot. In fact, with somebody who trains, who eats like five times a day, I've realized that when I go for a five, 10 minute walk after my meal, I'm I'm able to eat again in the next couple of hours without an issue versus if I don't, I do see an impact or feel an impact in my body. So mm-hmm. 10 minutes or so before your meal, about an hour after, but a 10 minute walk after your meal is uh, can really help with your digestion. And as Shana's talking about slowing down, um, having a relationship with your food. One of my things that I do, if I see my guitar behind me, I play a song before I eat usually, like a nice five minute song. Like I say my prayer and I play a song and that's my way of like slowing down, getting to a rest and digest state. Cause I say nobody, nobody eats and, you know, fights at the same time, right? You don't, you're yeah. not in fight or flight. It's just being rest and digest. So when I do that, it puts me in a rest and digest state. And I calmly eat my food without having to rush. And I've seen a huge difference as well. So thank you for breaking all that down. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's, let's talk about this. You said that, you know, the, the common, the common reflux, right? Of, you know, the, somebody has a pizza and a beer and they're, they're stuck their their body, they, they feel that acid reflux. But I've been told that that doesn't, that we think that means that your body is creating too much acid, but that's not necessarily the case. Can you explain that? Yeah. So this is really interesting. And I have revisited my physiology textbook many times on this to really 
make sure I'm grasping the physiology that we understand today right now um, in its entirely entirety. So it's true that actually in, in the initial phases of most people's heartburn, not everybody, but in a lot of cases, especially if it's stress induced, we actually produce more stomach acid. Kind of think about it from this perspective. Ancestrally, we are in the middle of eating and then something, you know, we hear something over in the bushes. Oh my God, there's a tiger. It's coming to get us. We want to expedite digestion. We're going to increase that stomach acid so we can finish that process to move it along so that we can start shunting blood to the extremities to start running. Now, here's where our um, stomach acid generally starts to come down. We've been in that chronic fight and flight state for an extended period of time, and most of us have that problem. We live in the notifications ding, ding, ding world all day long. And putting out many fires, we're in that chronic stress state. So a lot of us have less stomach acid than we need to be able to digest our food. And that creates a uh, cascade effect on our digestive system. So digestion is supposed to be north to south, down and out, not up. And reflux is the opposite of that, right? So what happens is, is we have that increase in stomach acid, the sphincter between our throat and our stomach closes. Now, when we've been running, running, running from that metaphorical tiger of all those notifications, we don't produce enough stomach acid for that sphincter to get the message. So then it stays open. And so now we have an open sphincter while we're trying to digest and do this crazy digestive process in our stomach that we aren't able to properly do because we have a hole that's creating a pressure different a pressure gap. We're letting that pressure go up and out into the mouth, into the throat. And we're not supposed to have stomach acid there. We're not supposed to have any digestive juices there except for spit, which does have digestive functionality. Um, so there's, there's this really interesting test and I've really considered getting it. It's a, an expensive machine because I like you, Zico, I really love objective data, although it doesn't always apply clinically. Um, it's called the Heidelberg test. Are you familiar? Um, no, I'm not actually. So the Heidelberg test is a little bit of a pro, uh, involved process. It's different than the Bravo test, which is what conventional GI docs will use, where they take a pH monitor and they stick it and it sits in your throat. So you're not supposed to have elevated pH, or excuse me, stomach acid in your throat. So a lower pH. Um, this capsule sits in your throat, not in your stomach. So I don't think it's the most accurate test. And that's why it's a misnomer in my mind. So the Heidelberg though, you swallow a capsule that has a pH sensor on it and you do a series of over the course of, I think it's two hours. It's been a little while since I've reminded myself about this. You take some baking soda and it reg it monitors your pH to determine how long your stomach takes to get back to a normal pH of one to two. That is a very acidic environment people. And if anybody took chemistry class, like I did hydrochloric acid, which is what stomach acid consists of, it's supposed to be able to burn through our skin, burn through the desk that my computer's sitting on. We want that. But the important thing is, is that we have a mucosal lining in our stomach. And when we have that protective barrier, our body can digest properly. Now, here's the problem. We're living in fight and flight notifications, metaphorical tiger, and that degrades our mucus layer that protects our body from stomach acid. So now enter the, I'm having reflux and my guts are burning and I have mild gastritis. One thing that really irritates me, Zico, is the fact that gastroenterologists will say this, and I've had many patients tell me this, oh, you just have a little mild gastritis on your EGD. That's totally normal. Is it? It's not. That is not normal. I don't understand why it's common 
Common does not mean normal, though. It's also common to have lots of metabolic issues in the United States, but that does not mean it is normal. So let's keep that forced like in our mind that common does not mean it's okay and healthy. And most of these patients, they come to see me because they're in pain. Gastritis is painful. It's inflammation of the stomach. And now one of your questions was like, what about stomach? What about uh, antacids? Like how, do, how do those help our health? Right. They right. Do, well, do they, well, help you our- know what? <laughs> That's the next question I'm going to ask. Cause I, but Actually, before I even go to antacids, I wanted to talk about water a little bit more because all the yeah. stuff that you just brought up. So with that, with that picture that you just painted us, because your body needs to be acidic. So when you drink- Stomach with, needs to be acidic. What did I say? What, the body. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the stomach needs to be acidic. My apologies, everyone. I'm smart. I swear to you, I am. <laughs> or maybe I'm not. Who knows? But with uh, the stomach needs to be acidic, right? So- with that being said, when you drink water, right, how does that actually, does that dilute your stomach acid? How does that lead to reflux? Yeah, I don't, I don't really buy that. Like, how does that even make logical sense? Like, I mean, I guess I could kind of see it, but if drinking a little bit of water before you eating kind of prepares your digestive system for um, digesting, how is that diluting stomach acid? That's that concept never really made sense to me. And this is not a a diss on any of your other guests. It's just like, that does not make sense to me. That's not what I understand how the physiology of the body works. We, we absorb our water. We need to drink. We need to have our water. Um, No, I don't. I don't think that it dilutes our stomach acid. That seems perfect. So then you're saying that drinking before or post your meal can help with your overall digestion then. Mm -hmm. Right. But again, it's an, it's an amount that's an appropriate for your body. Like there are water chuggers that will chug like cups of water at a time. Our body generally doesn't like that. And so if that's the type of drinker of water you are is a chugger, that might not be ideal for you because now you're going to fill up on water and your stomach on average is 16 ounces. That's a pretty small space. And then you're going to put like a cup or two of water in there. And then you're going to eat your big old meal that you're going to have. And that puts a lot of pressure on those sphincters um, to, to keep things closed. Right. And now you're going to have pressure that's going to push up on that lower esophageal sphincter and open it up because it cannot maintain that pressure. So that's where I feel like there's an appropriate amount of water, although I don't think drinking water during a meal is the right way. But again, a little bit, little like a couple, couple sips is not going to be the end all be all that's going to be like, that's why you got reflux. And you know what? Interesting too with drinking, right? So aside mm-hmm. from um, the dilution piece, right? The interesting way, the people that I've encountered who drink with their meal mm-hmm. also don't chew because they use that drink to exactly. wash the food down, right? Exactly. And that's where it can also lead to reflux as well, because as you said, the stomach doesn't have teeth. So I want us to be clear on that. So if the the one takeaway from this part of the episode is change a 10, 15 minutes for your meal, have maybe an eight ounce. When I say a cup of water, I'm not talking about like eight ounces or so. And around that, go for a walk after, and then maybe in an hour or so later, you can have some more water to help the digest, help the digestion go along. So that's my big takeaway from that part. With that being said, I'm gonna take a quick break because I want to talk about one of my favorite sponsors. And then we, after I do that, we're going to get into antacids and we're going to talk about some top tips to improve reflux. I mean, Shana got some more stuff that she's going to, she's going to give us today. Right. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you about the amino co. See, their products are 100% science-backed, built on amino acid technology that was first funded by NASA and further refined through rigorous research and independent clinical trials. 
what am I going to talk about? You know, what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about perform one of my favorite products an essential amino acid based formulation designed to improve muscle performance during exercise, enhance mental clarity and concentration, reduce fatigue and dehydration and minimize recovery times. Now I drink perform every day before I work out. What it really is is essential aminos along with creatine and it has caffeine. Now, because it has creatine, creatine has been studied for mental and physical performance, right? And we know the benefits of using creatine, especially when you train. However, because of the, because of the essential aminos and the creatine, they only use about 60 milligrams of caffeine per serving because most pre-workouts have what? 200, 300 milligrams of caffeine. Then they have all these sugars because it doesn't have anything else to help you throughout your training. So I love, since I started using Perform, I say about last year, I've completely felt a difference in how I train. In fact, check out um the this, this uh, study that I love. 20% increase in exercise completed. 22% increase in endurance, 11% increase in peak performance during exercise, and 10% improvement in cognitive function during exercise. Absolutely love Perform. Everybody knows anything that I recommend is I use, and, and that's definitely helped me and has helped my clients and my friends that have used it as well. So the website is aminoco.com slash ecohealth. You click on it, you can see my hands-on face just staring at you, and you get 30% off. They're wonderful products, not just perform, but heal that I also use as an intro or sometimes as a post-workout, right? So I'll make sure that the website is in the description of the episode so you can click on that and get your discount. And with that being said, we're back to the regular scheduled programming. Let's talk about antacids, um, Shana. How can antacids impact reflux? Yeah, this is a really great question because you know, the, this brings up the idea of, oh, well, my PPI, my proton pump inhibitor is working. What does that mean? It's working. Oh, you don't have any symptoms anymore. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the other negative effects on your body as a whole from taking pr- proton pump inhibitors long-term risk of pneumonia goes up risk of C diff, which is a really nasty bacteria that causes really severe diarrhea. The only thing that fecal microbial transplants are approved for in the United States is C diff. Like that's how bad it is. Um, really nobody wants that osteoporosis. I have worked with a gal who was taking a proton pump inhibitor for 20 years. I just got a message from a colleague of mine. Um, patient was pregnant 30 years ago, been on a PPI since then has severe osteoporosis, you know, and yeah, she's kind of in that age though. It's just chalk it up to age. The problem with proton pump inhibitors specifically, and I'll talk about some of the other more common antacids as well, um, is they directly inhibit the production of stomach acid. We need stomach acid to be produced to digest and absorb B12, neurological conditions, uh, iron, hello, iron deficiency, calcium, ding, ding, ding. There's the osteoporosis issue. When we have calcium imbalances, we then have magnesium imbalances, vitamin D imbalances, like the list goes on and on with nutritional uh, malabsorption because of loss of stomach acid. So when I say it blocks directly inhibits, it, it directly blocks the cells that produce stomach acid. And when that happens, then our pH goes from one to two to four to five which is a thriving environment for H. pylori. So does H. pylori cause acid reflux? 
I think it has a relationship, but I don't know if it directly causes or if there's some roundabout, like you've been digestive enzyme malnourished because after the age of 30, our digestive capacity decreases. So there's a big conversation to have that makes it a little more nuanced than going to your doctor and getting that one pill that solves your problems. Like very rarely do I see that actually being effective and okay, great. So now you got your PPI and you've been taking it for three years and your symptoms are starting to creep back in. You're like, uh, you know, I'm going to have a swig of my Lanta or Pepto, which Pepto isn't the worst one. I mean, there's ingredients in it I don't love, but what I do like about Pepto is it has ingredients in it that help to soothe and coat. This is where I talk about something like aloe or marshmallow root, which do the same thing without some of the negative health consequences of say the red dye in Pepto-Bismol or, um, my Lanta, I don't remember which one has, but there are a couple of the antacids that you can buy over the counter that have a high amount of aluminum in them. And aluminum, as as I know in the health field, and I don't know if everybody else knows, but I try and keep this in mind that like what I know is not always common knowledge. Um, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia are associated with aluminum buildup in the brain. So aluminum is not our friend in this particular case. Um, Tums, oh my gosh, Tums and Maalox. These were the things I ate like candy when I was dealing with my problems. And like, it helped for like 10 seconds, maybe a couple minutes if I'm being generous, right? Like I would get the eco-size bottles from Costco when I was in high school because I would go through them so fast and I was spending so much money on these chewable candy, basically. They have so much sugar and red dyes and fake flavors and ugh. Just they're not a great product to take long term. Occasional use, like I said, you know, dad's watching football and he's eating too much. Like there's probably some other things he should probably go see a doctor for, but he's probably not until there's a big problem. Generally, my experience with guys like that. Fine. Have your occasional tums. But the problem is, is people never have an occasional tums. It's like I was just in the drugstore yesterday and I heard a guy talking on the phone. What's that thing you take when you have heartburn? Oh yeah, Tums, that's what it is. That's what I'm looking for. And he's like standing in the aisle in the drugstore. Anyway, uh, H2 blockers. H2 blockers like Zantac and, oh, I forget what the other one is. That's really common. I actually like these medications more than I like proton pump inhibitors. The problem is clinically, they are less effective in their working, right? We talked about working. So, but Truth be told, they have less negative effects. And since we last spoke, I've had the honor of uh, meeting a retired general surgeon who his specialty was actually the Nissan fund application, which is the procedure where they take the top part of the stomach and wrap it around the esophagus to create a stronger lower esophageal sphincter artificially. Now, this general surgeon, he was a doctor of osteopathy, a DO. So they get extra training that conventional medical doctors don't in that the body has rhythms and movement. So I asked him about his success rate of the Nissan fund application compared to, you know, what I hear, which is like every five to 10 years, most commonly people will need a replacement surgery or again, at least once or twice in their lifetime, which that's a pretty major surgery to have. Um, And he was the one that told me, about PPIs and the risk of throat cancer increasing. And I was like, hold on a minute. He's This shows up in the data. And he was like, it shows up in the data. So this is a guy that was practicing for 30 years. He retired five or six years ago. Um, he's actually not that old. He's like not even 60. He just was done being a surgeon. And PPIs came onto the market in the late 80s which is interesting because that's when we started to see, and you know, correlation doesn't mean causation for sure. Let's talk about big pharma shenanigans there. But what he saw and what 
I'm seeing is definitely a trend of like, oh, but PPIs work a lot better at suppressing the symptoms that your body is literally screaming and burning your tissue to get your attention, to actually treat the body with what it needs, which generally it's the basic things that we started the podcast with, how you're eating, how you're drinking. Are you moving your body? Are you sleeping? Oh my God, that's such a big one. If you are not sleeping, which a lot of people dealing with chronic reflux are not. So that's why I think H2 blockers are safer. They have less negative side effects down the road, but they are less efficacious in their effects at working, at reducing symptoms. That's why people like prescribing proton pump inhibitors instead. Sleep. I I know sleep as far as the, the, the how many benefits for a health, but I've never connected it with acid reflux. So can you elaborate on that for us? Okay. So remember how I said earlier that mild gastritis is a common finding on the upper endoscopy. So the stomach is inflamed. It's irritated. We produce the mucus layers in our digestive system. You know how like our mouth is gooey. That's a mucus layer that keeps our mouth safe from the microbes that live in our mouth. We are... Sorry, dermaphobes, we are covered head to toe inside and out with microbes and viruses and fungi and the appropriate bounds for individuals. So when we're sleeping, when we're resting and digesting is when our body produces that mucus-like membrane that protects our layers. So if you're sleeping, say, you know, you're five hours of sleep a day kind of person, and then you're going to the gym and you're huffing along and you're, you know, doing all the hard things but you're only getting five hours of sleep, you're not getting enough time to recover. Your body heals in parasympathetic. And then to top it off, for some ungodly known reason, serial killer TV shows, podcasts, whatever people are listening to, constantly in a state of fear, fear, fear. So we live in this notification world. We're in a state of fear constantly. And then we're getting like very minimal deep restorative sleep in most people's cases, I'd say sleep is by far one of the most common complaints that people come to see me for. Once I get past, they're like, oh, I'm having hormonal issues. No, you're actually having sleep issues that are causing your hormonal issues. Once we get into it, right? Love that. Love that. I did, I never made the connection between sleep and acid reflux, but I have to say this. I do have an article on how to get quality sleep. It's on my website, ZikaHill.com. I talk about resetting your circadian rhythm because that's where most people struggle when and in the morning time their body thinks it's nighttime and it's a nighttime mm-hmm. their body thinks it's morning time because we don't get sun in the mornings but you know when we're supposed to and at nighttime we're getting all this artificial light and i talk about blue light blockers i talk about mm-hmm. caffeine i talk about your nightly routine should be um i talk about red light there's so much that i go into in that article and it's bullet points that you can follow it and learn how to reset your circadian rhythm even melatonin sometimes taking melatonin is important if you need to reset your circadian rhythm but it shouldn't be a common practice and i broke that down in the article so zikahealth.com check it out because if you're struggling with sleep, no matter what your health issue is, sleep can always help. Oh my and gosh. most of us do not, not just, we, not do we not just get enough sleep, but we don't get enough deep restorative sleep, right? So check out our article because that has completely transformed my life and it can really be beneficial for you too. Mm-hmm. So Shayna, I have one last question because you answered everything that I've asked at this point. And my audience is really going to be really going to benefit from everything that you've said. And I definitely want to have you on for part three. So just leave us with something. If you're talking to the a, a basic person, let's say put it in a language that a 10 year old can understand or mm-hmm. can I can understand because I'm not that smart. Right. Just with basic terms. 
somebody is struggling with reflux or know somebody is struggling with struggling, struggling, struggling with reflux, where should they start? Yeah, this is really great. So I start with the foundations for health because if the way I, the example I use is like your body is expressing symptoms and every person is going to be a little bit different in their expression. Right. And we've got a muddy puddle. So you're drinking diet soda or soda or whatever you're drinking instead of water. Great. Let's get you drinking water and some electrolytes because generally people are pretty mineral deficient. Let's work on sleep. Let's work on those taking walks after dinner. So building in healthy habits. And after doing that for about a month or two, let's see how things land. But Dr. Shana, I'm dealing with nighttime reflux and I can't sleep. Okay, well, then we need to alleviate that symptom pretty immediately. That's a big red flag in my mind that tells me the severity of someone's reflux. And that's where I bring on some things that are demulcent, like the aloe, the marshmallow, the slippery elm. Although I try not to use slippery elm because it is endangered because of a fungus, Dutch elm fungus. So, but I'm a fan of use what you have. If you have slippery elm root at home, use it. And licorice is another one I'm a big fan of, although there's a lot of misinformation about licorice root and you can even eat licorice candy that's artificially flavored that has no licorice in it and it's going to cause high blood pressure and kill you. Riddle me that. That's really interesting. Um, So bringing on those demulcents and fibrous foods, that's why I love uh, marshmallow root powder that you've mixed into some water or some aloe and make a little bit of a gruel. I know it doesn't sound appealing, but it's it's. Okay, we talked about that mild gastritis, right? Like we're going to slap this gooey goodness is what I call it into your esophagus and into your throat and down into your stomach. And it's going to help soothe that, create that uh, artificial mucous membrane layer, this like gooey layer that keeps our stomach and throat safe from the stomach acid and and the bugs that live inside our body so that our body can start digesting normally again. The goal is never for you to take marshmallow root for the rest of your life. The goal is for you to use it as a tool so that you can get off of your proton pump inhibitors so that you can sleep, get those deeper layers of restorative sleep. And when those things aren't working, then we need to address like, are you having a tongue tie? Are you having sleep apnea? Are you having something else that's negatively impacting your sleep that's preventing you from getting those deeper restorative layers? I'm not super supplement heavy supplements have their place and they are, can be hugely, hugely beneficial. But if a person that you're seeing starts you out the gate with 25 supplements, that might be a red flag that you need to go see someone else. I'm not anti-supplements. I take supplements. It's just a matter of they are tools and they should be used appropriately. Like Zico was saying earlier with melatonin, it's a tool. But if that's the only thing you're using and you're taking a cancer dose of melatonin, 20 milligrams and not just one milligram to get to sleep, we may have some deeper conversations we need to have to help you get well again. So that leads me to another question. At what point should someone say, I need to see someone? Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, you're doing the medications, you're doing the 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 low acid diet, the the no chocolate, the no whole list of no things you're allowed to have. You're taking walks, you're elevating your bed. And no, pillows do not count because like, Think about it from a, again, physiology perspective, you're sleeping on pillows, you're going to crush yourself right in this area where you're going to create increase in pressure. Like it's the same issue. That's where that wedge pillow can be really helpful because it keeps your spine straight. Um, You're doing all the things, but you haven't tried anything natural yet is when I, when I started to seek for additional help, because I knew there had to be a better way. And if you know, deep down 
there's got to be a better way than living on my Lanta and Tums and your Prelazek and your whatever propranazole that they have you on these medications and you're still struggling. That's when it's time to reach out. Like, honestly, I'd like you to reach out to someone before then, but generally people exhaust the conventional medical world before they come to see a natural health specialist like myself. Which is the perfect segue because everybody knows what the last question is going to be. Shana, how can my audience get in touch with you? And don't forget to tell them about your YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram, um, naturopathic underscore DR Shana. And I can give Zico my link or he's got my link. And I just started a YouTube channel. I'm kind of fiddling with the podcast realm. I've had a couple of my followers ask me. Um, I'm talking about health things. Of course, Medicine, Magic and Miracles is kind of the name of my little show for the time being. Um, I am also uploading like reports on medications because I feel like people don't have good informed consent on medications. Um, A new medication that came to my whatever. Anyway, podcast, YouTube, Dr. Shana. Uh, Dr. Shana Keller is my po- or YouTube channel link. I'll give that to Zico as well. And I'm on Facebook. I'm on threads. I don't know if I'll stay on threads. It's not as exciting as it was the first day, but here we are. <laughs> here we are, right? Yeah, so definitely. And of course, you know, the, the show notes, her information will be in the show notes. Show notes are going to be ZikaHill.com slash the acid reflux too. Because I think the first show notes were the acid reflux I think, but if not, then we're just going to say it was. And we're going to go with acid reflux two. That way, next time it's going to be acid reflux three until we just run this puppy into the ground. And with that being said, Shana, thank you for being here. My audience is going to love it. I have definitely learned a lot as always. I was blown away. When I sit back in an interview and just just let you talk, that means I'm just absorbing all the wonderful information you're giving us. I told everyone she was amazing and I always know she's amazing and the world knows she's amazing. And with that being said, We're out for the day, fam. Thanks for joining the Matter Over Mind experience. If you got good content out of this or any of my shows, save, subscribe, and share it with anyone who needs this information. Remember, always take the scenic route and enjoy the ride.